So thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. We're joined by Michael Favala Goldman. Michael will be reading to us from and talking to us about the trouble with happiness. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Yvonne. Nice to be here with you. Oh, wonderful. So we're going to jump right in. Could you please tell us a bit about the book? The Trouble with Happiness is a collection of short stories, actually two books of short stories that were published in Danish that I've collected into one volume published by uh, FSG in the United States and Penguin Classics in the UK. And uh, so Tove Ditlevsen is the name of the Danish author. She's one of the most famous and most loved Danish authors, but her work has never made it out of Denmark until 2021. Well, that, that's not entirely true. In 2021, her translations made a big splash with the Copenhagen Trilogy. Before that, she was not very well known outside of the country. The Copenhagen Trilogy was chosen as one of the 10 best books of the year by the New York Times. I translated book three of the trilogy. And as a follow-up to that, I was reading all of Tova's books, and I thought that her next best work was her short stories. And so I picked what I felt were the two best books of her short stories, collected them and pitched them and uh, was accepted. And so that became her next big thing. So she was born in 1917. She grew up in Copenhagen. She Her childhood through the Depression, her early adult years were when Denmark was occupied by Germany during World War II. She was very poor and married a small-time publisher who helped her get her first book published. And after that, she wrote about a book a year for the rest of her life. Short stories, novels, memoirs, poetry, many books of poetry, essays, and children's books. She was Denmark's Dear Abby, running an advice column in the most popular women's magazine for 20 years as well. The memoirs, the Copenhagen Trilogy documents pretty well her failed marriages, her two back alley abortions, her addiction to opioids, and her struggles with psychiatric problems. And she died by suicide, overdose of pills in 1976. So this these works go back 50 or 60 or even 70 years, but are still very relevant today, which is part of why I decided to take them on and bring them into English. And the trouble with happiness, the title kind of alludes to like, what is the trouble with happiness? Like, what does that mean? And these stories are all about relationship, relationships of all different kinds, children to parents, spouses, partners adults to their employees, grown adults to their aging parents, all different kinds of relationship, families coming together, families splitting up. And the trouble with happiness relates to this idea that partners in any relationship often find that only if the other person would behave the way we want them to, then we would be happy. <laughs> and that sets up, obviously, a troubling dynamic and she gives us these examples from at least at all different angles that so that perhaps maybe as readers, we can do it better. Wow, what a gift to the reader, but also what a wonderful way to be remembered after, you know, all this time. I feel like as a writer, it's just really lovely to to even think that, you know, years later, decades later, someone will say, you know what, um, this story is so relevant and I want to translate it and bring it to new readers. Could yeah. we have a reading, please? 
So here's an excerpt from The Cat. This story involves a married couple. The wife recently took in a stray cat, and it's not housebroken. And the wife has now returned from the hospital because she just had a miscarriage. The husband has chased the cat out of the house and shut the windows while his wife is preparing dinner. Leaning against the kitchen counter, he watched his wife. She was putting meat through the grinder and catching it in her hands, leading it into a bowl as it came creeping out of the little holes like long, bright worms. Where did the cat go? She didn't look up from her work. He shrugged. How should I know? She looked up quickly. You let it out, she said. Her voice trembled slightly with anger. Oh, you have cat on the brain, he said, attempting a laugh. She washed her hands, then dried them carefully, finger by finger, with movements as if she were putting on gloves. Go get it, she said calmly. His eyes looked askance. He wanted to say something. There was a clump stuck in his throat as if he were about to cry. What is the problem, he thought. It's almost like she hates me. With a helpless look, he walked past her and out of the kitchen. Kitty, he called outside. Here, kitty. If the cat comes back, he thought, then everything will be fine. But it didn't come. He looked all through the yard, and his anger was chased away by something overwhelming and unknown for which he did not have the words. He searched between the trees in the snow-covered grass. He was searching for a little cat, which brought a load of trouble and no joy. It didn't make any sense. He was always a man who had been led by reason, who had advanced step by step because of this. He never had urges to do meaningless things. He had married a pretty girl from a good family. In a few years, he would become a manager. And then they might be able to allow themselves to have a child. Gaeta could stop working. Here, kitty, kitty. He was pleading for his life and didn't know why. He was afraid. He was moving in unknown territory. He didn't recognize the woman who was standing in his kitchen anymore, demanding he return with a mangy, untrained animal. He wanted her the way she was before when he could talk to her about everyday things. He would hold her in his arms and feel pride of ownership again. Maybe he could buy her with this cat. It was sitting in a corner of the shed, hissing as he approached. Kitty, he whispered gently, don't be afraid. Come in to your mama. Come on now. The cat darted between his legs and jumped in through the open kitchen door all by itself. She had it in her arms when he came in. Tears were falling on its fur. She kissed it on the head, on the paws, gave it long smacking kisses on its ears. He could see her body trembling. Gaeta, he said, frightened. Suddenly, she let go of the creature as if she had awoken from a deep sleep. She stared at her hands, which had just been caressing the cat so lovingly. She lifted her head and took a wobbly step toward her husband. Then she stopped and wiped her forehead with the back of her hand. 
Well, she said, I guess I'd better finish making dinner. Wow. So you've answered the question about kind of what was it about it that made you want to translate it now because we we needed these stories. And even that one, I feel like it's so moving and so tender and so full for it to be, you know, a short story. It says so much. And so I'm curious, how did you decide with with the body of work that you had to choose from, how Mm. did you decide what goes into what went into the collection? Yeah, so she wrote four books of short stories. These were her two later books of short stories as you know, maybe a slightly mature, more mature writer. I felt they were tighter. And also, I love how there's a lot unspoken. There's a lot between the lines. You know, that's where the emotion, she doesn't tell us how to feel or even how the characters are necessarily feeling, but we get it from their thoughts and their actions. And one thing that's very interesting about this, I mean, there's a lot of things that are interesting about this, is that she draws these stories from her personal experience. She was married four times and divorced four times. And and she also had children that you know, went with her or didn't. She, she was aware of all these different levels of conflict from all these, you know, broken marriages. And she, I think that she really, she used that as, as fuel. I've often said she knows how to read a room. Like she knows what is going on and has a flair for communicating it really precisely and concisely at the same time. I think you're right, because there was a lot in those silences and in those movements and in the shaking, the trembling, that it would just, this could make you think and wonder and explore. So how beautiful. Could we have another reading, please? Yeah. You know, as a single woman who grew up poor, who was often dependent on men and yet made her own way uh, eventually and became a very famous and influential and not wealthy, but, you know, very, you know, but very well established writer. Many of these stories involve vulnerable women and also illuminate patriarchal attitudes that keep women vulnerable. And this one, I think, does a good job of that. This is uh, an excerpt from the story, A Fine Business, is the name of the story, A Fine Business. In this, a real estate agent shows a house to a young couple. The wife, Hannah, is pregnant. And the seller is a single mother at home with three children. One of them is a nursing baby. After the agent and the couple enter, the agent says to the husband, shall we go upstairs? Go ahead and nurse, ma'am. I can take care of this. The woman hesitated as if she lacked confidence that he could take care of this to her satisfaction. Her daughter's clear voice suddenly filled the brief pause that followed. She was standing, gripping a corner of her mother's dress. When it rains, it splashes down through the ceiling. The mother shook her dress free. Irritated, she blushed. Keep your mouth shut, she threatened. The child put her arm in front of her face as if she were expecting to get hit. The real estate agent was about to die of laughter. If you're not careful, your kids are going to chase away all the buyers, he said. And then the joviality disappeared instantly from his face, as if erased by an invisible hand. Hannah suddenly saw a gleam in his eye, which gave her an anxious feeling. She smiled at the little girl who did not smile back. Oh, you must be sorry to be leaving your house, she said in a friendly voice. That's only natural. The real estate agent nodded, cut a tip off a new cigar. 
Children don't know what's good for them, he said. He looked at the mother as if he were waiting for her to agree. The husband wrinkled his brow. Is it true it leaks when it rains? He asked in an interrogatory tone. The woman blushed slowly all the way down her throat like a child caught in a lie. She opened her mouth to respond, but the real estate agent beat her to it. Nonsense, he said flatly. So while the men are upstairs, the homeowner asks if Hannah would like to see her baby. The mother held the infant in her arms, looking proudly at Hannah. Isn't he adorable, she asked, while she sat down and put her nipple in the baby's mouth. He certainly is. Hannah observed curiously the wrinkled little head, which was bald in the back like all babies. She smiled. I'm looking forward to having mine, she said confidentially. A shadow fell across the mother's face. We had been married 11 years, she said into the air. Then my husband met a young woman at the office. She lifted her gaze and looked Hannah in the eye. I still don't understand it, she said, that he really is never coming back and leaving me to take care of everything. He said, just sell the house, then you'll have that money. And he knows I have no sense for things like this. You don't even know the person you're married to. Wow. So the final question that I get to ask, and I feel like there are multiple conjunctions in it. (laughs) But so you've translated over 16 books. And I'm curious what that's like and how you approach translating a book. And also if the books come to you or if you find them. Before I started translating, I was a carpenter contractor, and I had been reading Danish literature for 25 years. I I, um, went to Denmark when I was 17, met a Danish girl. We married seven years later. I taught myself Danish when I was 19 to help win her and her family over. And as a bookish person, I jumped in reading Danish literature to keep up my language skills and keep improving them. And over the many years, I fell in love with a number of Danish authors. And after 25 years of reading Danish literature, started to translate some of the poetry that I particularly loved for my own enjoyment. And it snowballed and basically took over my life. (laughs) And I have now translated many different authors, both poetry and prose, also nonfiction, children's books. And in every case, almost every case, these were books that I chose, authors that I chose because I loved their work. And I was fortunate enough to find several publishers that would work with me. There are a couple that a couple of books that were presented to me, but by, but I think only two. So by and large, these were all books that I chose. And all of my books are for sale on my website, michaelfavalagoldman.com. Although they're also for sale other places, I can sign them and happy to ship them out immediately. Oh, that's wonderful. I also love that it all started, you know, for love. <laughs> yeah, it did. Could we have our final reading and also... Could we also hear from your own poetry as well, please? Yeah, let's do that. So this is the final story, the title story of The Trouble with Happiness. And what's interesting about this story is that it is completely autobiographical. Even though it's billed as a short story, it is 
also Tova Ditlayosin's life. And it is kind of a bridge to her trilogy of her memoirs. And so very interesting to read that and then to see this short story as well. As like I said, she wrote the short stories before her memoirs. And this story is kind of the bridge. But this is a uh, an excerpt. I will read the first two sentences in Danish so that you and your listeners can hear what it sounds like in the original. Det var lykkedes min far at finde noget midlertidigt arbejde, og han begyndte at blive væk om aftenen. Antagelig gik han på værtshus, for han var ganske overflødig i min mors verden. My father had found some temporary work, and he began staying out late. Presumably he went to a bar, because he was completely superfluous in my mother's world. That is how I finally had my room to myself in peace, and I read books and wrote poems until late at night. I spent daytimes in the reading room at the library, so my mother would think I was at work, and the money I got for my published poems I locked in the sewing box with the inlaid mother of pearl, my brother's cabinet maker journeyman test piece which he had given to me for my confirmation. It was a very pretty little thing. When the lid opened, it played, fight for all that you hold dear. At any rate, those were the lyrics I sang inwardly to its crisp melody. Not long after my father lost his job again and my mother scraped margarine on our bread and we had porridge three times a week. It was a terribly cold winter and my aunt still refused to die. They all thought I was still packaging tin cans because thanks to my editor, I was still able to deliver my weekly 20 kroner to my family. One month before I turned 18, I pulled myself together and visited my brother at his rented room on La Slyostrade. The landlord looked at me skeptically when I asked to see my brother. They all say that, she said as she let me in. He was standing in the center of the floor of a nearly empty room in the process of gluing together a chair. A sudden wave of tenderness came over me at the sight of him. I hadn't seen him for a long time. He seemed to be glad to see me too, and we sat down on his unmade bed. Dad has no work, I said, and Anna is dying and they're flat broke. I don't see what that has to do with me, he said defiantly. They ruin things between me and Gunhild. I could never invite a girl home without mom going bananas. At least here we can be in peace. You have a new girlfriend, I asked, a bit shocked. I hadn't thought of that possibility, although he was 21 and a handsome young man. Yes, and I plan to keep her. To my surprise, I started to sob. He had never seen me do that. We never expressed our feelings. That's how it was at home. He put his arm around my shoulder, which was also the first time ever. Then the confessions poured out of me about my broken off engagement, about not packaging tin boxes anymore, about my poems and my plans for the future, and about the editor who seemed to be in love with me and who had enough influence to help me make it in the world. And all this, I explained, could only happen if he moved back home. If one of us didn't support them, they would freeze and starve. If nothing else, I pleaded, could he just do it temporarily to ease the transition when I moved out? He stood up and started pacing. Do you make money off that writing? 
He asked sheepishly, not much to speak of, I said, but I will eventually. And then I promise to help them. A sad smile emerged in his brown eyes. Fine, fine, he said with a sigh. I'll do it. Just stop crying. I can't stand it. I think you're going to be famous. Just wait. That editor is going to marry you. I didn't look at him when I said goodbye. I didn't ask who he was engaged to. I knew he would never be able to invite her home to my parents. Three days after my aunt died, I moved out to a rented room. My mother was too heartbroken to really notice. I took advantage of her condition to tell her I would be married soon. She answered strangely, it doesn't matter who you marry. My brother kept his promise and moved back home to the room behind the curtain, and I forgot all about them for a while, forgot about my home and lived my own life. But sometimes when someone has left me, or I discover inadvertently in the eyes of my children a glimpse of cold observation, of merciless, unsurmountable distance, I take out my brother's little sewing box and open the mother-of-pearl inlaid lid, and the worn old music maker plays. Fight for all that you hold dear. Oh, how wonderful. Could we end on your poetry, please? Yeah, I have a poem. This poem is from my most recent book, If You Were Here, You Would Feel at Home. And I chose it because it speaks to that the impasses that can happen in relationship. Interface. I can't ask for what I want, but I know what to give you. You can ask for what you want, but you don't know what to give me. I don't ask you what you want, but you tell me anyway. You keep asking me what I want, and I don't know what to tell you. I think you should know by now. You think I still don't know. You think I should know by now. I can't believe you still don't know. Oh, how lovely. Michael, thank you so much for being my guest tonight, for the readings and for their time. I really appreciate it. It was, it was a treat. Thank you so much, Yvonne. It was a pleasure to share all this with you.